save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. And good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. As you know, lately, my guests and I have been discussing the critical points we are facing as to our human decision-making processes toward our future and what the path these decisions and processes has looked like and where they're getting us. The question we ask today is what will it take us, people, to get on a path toward regeneration and renewal? What has our Western model of business as usual, what is it doing to our natural world and our children? What will it take for us to wake to the alarm bells that are ringing and find a way toward a balance sheet that includes our natural communities as a part and parcel of the overall community of life? Today, my guests are parents, poets, writers, and wildlife filmmakers and photographers, Cyril Christo and Marie Wilkinson, and also authors of several books and articles and that advocate for shifts in our behavior and activities on Earth through their current film, Walking Thunder. Their most recent, latest article, written by Cyril in the Northampton Star, Twisted Balance Sheet, asks these very questions, which we'll explore today. Welcome, Cyril and Marie. It's good to have you back. Thank you, you, Ellie. Um, This is Marie. Um, Wonderful show. I love the um, depth and breadth of your your topics. Well, thank you very much. Absolutely vital in this day and age. Thank you. Well, it's important and it's a venue to get the word out there, but what makes it happen is people like you. There are so many people around the world today that are advocating for and doing things for this paradigm shift that many of us feel deeply in our in our souls in our bone in our guts to that we're doing something wrong um what can we do right let's talk about this article you wrote twisted balance sheet cyril it um it's quite uh it, it puts it right right out there in black and white uh if you want to read from it i have it here in from front of me but let's talk about you're passionate about this let's talk about it are you there? Well, I think I think when 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 you have a, a little boy is taking in the marvel of the world and its challenges, uh, everything becomes magnified at, well, that, at many many fold levels because he's well, that's the future. for sure. Let's let's talk a little bit. You have a son, a beautiful son, Lysander. You've done a short film called Lysander's Song. You are incredible photographers. Marie, I've, I've seen you work when we were at The Crush. And uh, you've been documenting elephants and wildlife for many years, I'd say decades now. Uh, what, what are some of the changes uh, that you're seeing because of your son, who's been participating with you on several of these journeys? Uh, what, what is, why has this suddenly become such a critical uh, action for you personally? Well, I think, um, you know, we started um, our journey of um, what you might call looking at Africa, but really looking at places uh, 
and people. We really started looking at, at people, and then that evolved into uh, wildlife. Um, with our son, um, the thinking changed as we watched, particularly as we were traveling. We were people. There, there's another connection that one has with um, the various place, the people in the various places we visit. And there is this great love of their land, of their place, of culture, and of life that was constantly being shared and reinforced. And we learned so much more about the subtleties as well as universalities of, of humankind as, we walked, as we've walked across this planet with, our, with a young child. Well, tell us a little about, about some of these other, to give us some counterpoint some of the other cultures and some of the other people that you've been working with, uh, I don't want to say exploring, because once you've worked with other cultures and been with these people, it's very uh, present how different their lifestyles are compared to us here in the West, which is what Cyril's article focuses on. So tell us a little bit about these different cultures and some of the travels and taking a young child with you. Um. Well, Lysander's been traveling to East Africa and Southern Africa with us since he was uh, 11 months old, I think. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a challenge right there. Yes. So he has spent um, a, a fair amount of time with Maasai people, in uh, both with guides and drivers, but also in villages. He's spent time with... Um, Samburu people, both of these tribes are in Kenya. They're both related. They're both cattle tribes. And they both have very strong connection to place, the places where they live, um, and how, what needs to be done in order for them to survive and their cattle to survive. He spent time with uh, a particular Waliangulu um, elephant hunter. Elephant hunter, whom he's met now on three occasions, I believe. Um, who who talks about the the what's going on with the elephants and how they traditionally hunted the elephants, but what their what the controls were, how one needed to pray, how one needed to revere the animal, what how one how these animals are our brothers and sisters. He spent time with Hassan Bushman um, in that South would be Africa, Namibia or Botswana, or South Africa. In South Africa, Botswana, not so much. Uh, we were far up in the north when he was in Botswana um, and saw how people could live with a digging stick and a bow and arrow, and he's very keen on the bow and arrow at the moment. Um, but he's also been traveled with us up into the far north, up into the Arctic, and spent time with the Inuit, who have their connection and reverence for the polar bear and live in a, an extremely harsh as we all know, climate, and um, need to have a knowledge and understanding of, of place in order to survive. So, Cyril, how has Lysander, Cyril and Marie, Cyril, you're, you're so poetic in your writing and so outspoken in a very subtle and loving way. Uh, I can imagine the two of you with Lysander. How has seeing the world through Lysander's eyes affected your perspective, your photography, your film ma- making, and this, this film, Walking Thunder? 
Well, for I think for us, it's not just the the documenting of what we're doing as adults, but how he perceives what what happened in the last trip in Kenya, where there was a little turmoil on the coast with um, the groups that are not happy with the Kenyan government. Um, and arriving between that incident on the coast where 60 people were killed and the loss of perhaps the largest tusker on the planet, with tusks maybe look like a foot wide, that several people had looked at. Um, Lysander started to... Um, he was killed in around the, the first part of June. We arrived a little bit after that happened. The elephant, um, not Lysander. Yeah, the it, was, it was written in the New Yorker, the whole front... Uh, page of the talk of the town, which is uh, unusual. But uh, he started taking photographs himself and wanting to be very active. Before he was taking digital shots that we may not have kept all of those images from a few years back, but now he was very, very much engaged in perceiving and crafting, shooting black and white roles, maybe taking um, the whole role in in a few minutes, but we gave it to him because it, it, it concentrates the attention and his focus was very much on the uniqueness of this time. Uh, when we were in Samburu, he was on the car, and we saw some of the mothers with the babies coming by. One baby came up to the car and almost looked like it kissed the insignia that was done by an artist in Nairobi for the car that we were on, for uh, the group we were with. And it was really quite extraordinary to see it from above, and the, uh, the baby actually kissing or um, greeting. greeting us at, right against the well, door. Greeting the vehicle and the and the and, and the guide and the driver through that he was the young baby See, was familiar with you're ta- already. You're talking about an elephant baby. Yes, an elephant baby. Okay. <laughs> and an elephant had done that when when on his very first trip to Kenya. On Lysander's very first trip. On Lysander's first trip, when he was um, just turning one, and a baby left its mother. Um, before the world knew what was going on with the elephants now, and the baby just came and didn't press his, his nose and trunk against the car, but took his trunk and touched the entire length of our car, and then looking up as if recognizing a little one in Lysander. So those kind of moments of, of recognition are, are absolutely priceless. Well, there's been a lot of um, research and data lately uh, over the past 10, 15 years of how complex and social elephant society is and that they do recognize uh, our culture. They do recognize us as humans and they do differentiate between adult humans uh, and babies and those who carry weapons to those who don't and that they even recognize our voices and Mm -hmm. our language and whether we're male and female. So it's not such a surprise to me that an elephant baby and an elephant family would recognize your family. Um, So what is this, what is this provided for the two of you in terms, Cyril and Marie, in terms of trying to advocate and change and what is it you want to change about our culture? Cyril, over many conversations you and I have talked and the statement that stands out most in my mind is that you said here in the West, we no longer have a culture. Can you explain that? Or ex- People not explain it, expand on it. In terms of how we... Uh, activate ourselves, what we buy, what, what we yearn for, and what we hold as uh, interesting, the music, the, the, the television, whatever we consume. Uh, 
but whether um, it's the Oxford Dictionary which talks about trans- talks about mind and transmission of ideas over generations, the important culture for me is what we can uh, give to the next generation. If we if we just have accumulation of of of, of things, you know, they say the best things in life are not things. The the teachings are 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 not core teachings. We don't we don't generally honor the Thoreaus, the Emersons. You know, Thoreau once talked about the elephants. Um, if we had a little bit more of a core um, um, ballast in terms of what we hold sacred, um, Thoreau once once when he when he was talking about the whales, he knew the slaughter that was going on, but he also knew what was going on with the explorers in Africa. He once said something very interesting. He said, what if a greater race of beings were to make flagellates, little flutes, and buttons out of our bones? You know, we go through these programs to, or schools to supposedly adjust us to society and, and perhaps even more so to get a job. But we don't know what is sacred. All oral traditions in the world, um, of which we are not, but most languages in the world are oral traditions have something or, or, or should be able to hold on something that's transmitted to the next generation that they hold sacred. Um, we do not. It's, it's things usually that we consume. So one can spend a long time in America from another country, know what one has, what one, what has bought, but not know what has, what has moved one's heart. Um, and I think that's what I ended the article in terms of, 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 of a very funny but silly little um, linguistic uh, play that the word heart is is composed of the word earth or back or or the other way around. Huh. Um, in another piece, I was looking at an extraordinary writer, perhaps the most eloquent writer, I think, on nature in terms of our place in the universe, in terms of how we related to the organic world, was Lauren Isley. Absolutely. Um, no one really remembers him today. Most certainly not most people in school. Most adults they'll have a hard time even know, knowing the E.O. Wilsons and um, Diane Fossey's of our time, or Paul Watson. But in his extraordinary book, The Invisible Pyramid, uh, he was looking at the rocket age. Um, he had a paragraph I could share. What was interesting is that uh, about a month and a half ago, when we saw the, or two months ago, when we saw the supermoon coming out of the ocean, Lysander enjoyed it, and was amazed by the beauty of it and everything that he sees in the natural world. So he, he's responding to it. He's speaking out. He said something very interesting. He said, we've landed on the moon, but we haven't landed on Earth yet. Huh. Um, that's, that's a pretty um, astounding, astonishing statement for a 10-year-old to make. No, eight, and, he said that when he was eight. Oh, for <laughs> eight. An, oh even more well, so. Let's make it more astonishing. Um, Say that again, Marie. I said, let's then, then let's make it more astonishing. <laughs> it's, it's because, because it's not, again, the mental. It's like we've been so obviously separated with all these layers that all the people, from Lewis Mumford to, I was reading Jerry Mander, who wrote Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television, which may seem extreme, but he looks at it in terms of the industrial complex and, and what we're given, uh, the very few programs that really move the soul, and maybe we should only have uh, five channels of, of, of significance on that uh, particular console. But 
Lauren Isley said something very interesting. He said, today, today man's mounting numbers and his technological power to pollute his environment reveal a single demanding necessity, the necessity for him consciously to re-enter and preserve for his own safety the old first world from which he originally emerged. His second world, drawn from his own brain, has brought him far, but he cannot take him out of nature nor can he live by escaping into his second world alone, the digital, the consoles, the Facebook, everything that's very seductive now. Um, he must incorporate from the wisdom of the axial thinkers. He's talking about Lao Tzu, Kung Fu Tzu, the Christ, the Buddha especially. Um, an ethic not alone directed towards his fellows, but extended to the living world around him. He must well, make by way... So this, that's a very, very special thought, as, as all of his thinking is. It is. And, you know, I, I will interject here for a second. Uh, it was Cyril who inter- introduced me to Lauren Isley, and I cannot stop reading him now. I'm mm-hmm. currently reading his immense journey, which um, we'll come back to right after the break and draw some comparisons between what Lauren Isley wrote in the 1950s to E.O. Wilson to Rachel Carson. But right now we're going to head to a break, so stick with me. I'm speaking with Cyril Christo and Marie Wilkinson, and we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. 
welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss with my guest Cyril Christo and his lovely wife, uh, Marie Wilkinson. And we're um, by proxy, their son Lysander. Right before the break, uh, Cyril had mentioned some writings by the, one of the most fabulous, prosetic, uh, and prophetic and poetic writers I think I've ever written, Laura, I've ever written, read, I'm sorry, Lauren Isley. And I think we are missing the Isleys of today. In uh, his book, The Immense Journey, he referred to something Cyril's had said just before the break, that he was on a um, backcountry trip and he'd gone down to dig for a fossil. And as he was digging, he was, he'd gone into a crevasse. And as he was digging out this fossil, he sees the fossil's eye looking up at him, gazing up at him with its empty eye sockets. And that prompted Lauren Isley to look up through the uh, crack in the earth of, from which he descended and up to the sky and ponder what being would in the future be digging out his bones that he would never meet, just as the fossil he was digging out had never met him. So I would strongly suggest our listeners to pick up and read Lauren Isley. He's probably one of the few scientists, naturalists, and um, most amazing writers that we've ever had on Earth. So, Cyril and Marie, I understand this is the kind of background, the kind of life that you're raising your son in. He sounds unique and hopefully uh, not to be singularly unique. But, Cyril, you've, t- you've talked a lot about this this loss of culture in our Western world, that the business mind of bigger and better has prevailed. How will we go about, and you as a family, and the travels, and you as a family share with us and our listeners and the rest of humanity, um, how will we go about reducing this Western mindset and regaining our culture? What do you think it's going to take? That, that's the that's the eternal question. <laughs> well, of course it is, but that's that's our discussion today. What I mean, I know you're doing uh, the, the books the, that you the, can the, and the films the Hopi, that you can. The Hopi in an article, it was called the the tipping point. It was I think the one after we we started looking at the Hopis who who sang to their corn. It wasn't just a question of getting a seed in the ground. They took care of it as if it were sacred because it is. Um, I think we have to understand, because nature is telling us now, that uh, we're not um, the, the, the chosen species. It was, it was Romain Gary who wrote The Roots of Heaven about Morel, who wanted to save the elephants back in the 50s, who knew my grandfather, who said we're not, uh, we're not uh, singular among nature's species in terms of being specially endowed. There are no really chosen people. <laughs> there are no chosen species. And obviously nature is reacting. It's, the, it's our ability to understand how nature is reacting. And when we were on a trip to the Arctic, one climate scientist was putting monitors. He was from Brazil, from the top of the Arctic Shield, um, where there's no ice right now. That's why the 35,000 walruses stranded in the north slope of Alaska one of the most uh, powerful images many people probably might not have, might not have seen now, but it's uh, extraordinary. Um, all the way down to the tip of South America, looking at the weather changes or, or temperature gradients. And he said, we just have to be very, very sure that the temperature does not get out of control. The Guardian paper, which looks at 
the world through through the British Empire's eyes are extraordinary, telling us what's going on everywhere. Uh, the New York Times that I've had uh, uh, fisticuffs with, who who don't have closed the environmental desk, don't necessarily report what's going on. We have it within our means. If the business-minded sector today, the Frenchman won the Nobel Prize for Economics, but is it is it is, is it isolated in its own abstract world? Is it technical ease or or economic ease uh, that uh, has very little to do with our daily lives? You know, it's almost like a, a click. Uh, well, a we, under, we understand this is going on. I mean, you and I speak endlessly about these issues, and my guests, my other guests on this program, we speak about these issues. But uh, it is the $64 million question, the eternal question, but this is the point. How are we going to get our children out of this system to begin to question, to get their parents to begin to question? Uh, you had mentioned that um, there was the climate march in New York and it wasn't written up in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Recently, it was the global march for elephants in, on October 4th. Every country on the face of the planet uh, marched for elephants, but was, it was only a few cities in the U.S. that participated. So what is it about us? What is it that we, we understand what we're losing but what we're trying to get is how can we help people reconnect? And I know well, you have I, some like incredible to, thoughts on this. I'd like to uh, speak to this on, on a really simple and really basic level. We need to feel comfortable enough to, and, and calm enough to admire our surroundings, where we live. And while these issues are enormous, the implications are enormous, the ramifications are enormous, the, the, the solutions or what we believe the solutions to be are, are, are outside of most people's capacity to imagine and therefore create paralysis. What we need to be able to do is see the ants walking down our path. Notice the squirrels, notice the birds. Pay attention to the places where, the place where we live. We need to be able to connect back with what plants bloom when, whether, and, you know, what, when they die, when these birds come, when they haven't come. Pay attention to how things are changing. And then begin to reconnect with place and reconnect with our spirit and reconnect with our, um, our membership in this, our in this complex planet. And that is our humanity, absolutely. You, you and know, I, I we, agree with you. It is not about dominion over, which means control over. It is rather, it is rather recognizing that we all have parts. Just as not all humans are the same, we all have roles to play in our own societies. We also have roles to play within the society of, of nature. Uh, but we also have to recognize that the other beings, both plants and animals, as well as weather, have roles to play. Well, I and, agree with you, you know, 1,000%. 
Um, and, you know, we're, we're singing to the choir and talking to each other and our yes. um, colleagues. But let's think for a minute. You live in an inner city housing development. And mm-hmm. there is no nature, per se, around you as we consider it in terms of going for hikes and walks and Walden Pond or something like that. How do we help people there who are poverty-stricken in this culture that can't afford to buy real food, can only afford to buy processed food that's killing us, how do we help them reconnect? How do we reach those children in a school system that's failing us and uh, connect not only the children but the adults of the inner city urbanized world that very rarely gets a chance to step outside mm. into nature. That's a very good. That's a very good question, and I think one of the keys is connecting with the adults, um, the teachers, because we can't underestimate the number of teachers who actually haven't haven't experienced. Um, life outside an urban city. But to say that, or an urban, a highly urban section of a city, but to say that there is no nature there is, is wrong. There is. There, 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 are, there are green, there may not be planned green spaces. Often there are. But there's grass that comes up through the crack in the sidewalk. There's, um, there are birds that come through. There are pigeons. Um, but I don't know. I had a, I had a, exercise in second grade where we had to plant seeds and, and watch them grow. And I think we planted them in plastic cups and watched, the, um, watched them germinate, watched the root system start to grow, and then the, the leaves come up. And then there was a discussion about plants that sometimes didn't grow, and then we'd talk about whether maybe you didn't really like lima beans, and maybe that's why it didn't grow. Why don't you try a pea? But there are, oppor- there are little opportunities to look at the wonders of, of the larger system. Even, um, um, yeah. And, was- wait, and then I want to go back to the, 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 when I talk about the human, um, our role in nature vis-a-vis the roles of, of other plants and animals. Um, obviously, there are, are colonies where one species dominates over everything else. But within that species, there's a recognition of the different roles. Um, in different types um, that people play. And Absolutely. if we can start to recognize those, I mean, it goes back to Aesop's fables or, or um, a lot of the childhood stories where uh, animals take on aspects of the human um, character. Yeah, and Ellie, the, 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 we have very major prophets still among us, uh, even if not, of them, not all of them are alive. The, Thomas Berry recommended an ecological education. It would, be, it would behoove the teachers to, even if you're in the inner city, to, 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 to write reports, to have uh, a connection. With, we saw a, a peregrine fowl, a red, red-tailed hawk, catch a rat right in front of us when we were in New York last year for a wildlife film festival just a few feet from our hotel room, but we had never seen that before. People could look at maps and stories of what was happening 100 years ago, see what, what trees are doing, what, what, what they're doing, writing a report on the black bear cub that was found in Central Park. What, there's a, that's a whole history there that could be a children's book. Um, a mandatory course. I had to take a mandatory year of literature in college where a lot of kids today do not do that, and it affected me in a way that 
I realized this this is imagination at work. This is metaphor. These are this is who we are because this is we need to know our story. If we got back to some aspect, as Joseph Campbell says, of who we are, what we're really here for is to respect the world in the best of human terms because we we're the only ones who use language. I think the way we do is one of the only really interesting things because it's it's without it we don't we we, we cease to be human. Um, and usually language can, 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 well, it can, it can start battles, but we have, to, we have to train our minds to be a little bit more tolerant of each other. But if we disseminated the story of what really matters, I think what the Hopi in, in the article I, I wrote have been telling us that, that this time of purification is going to force us to realize what is actually uh, the, the, the basis of what it means to be human. The drought in California is not a coincidence. What's happening with the bees, which in, in terms of the planet are as important as the elephants and the whales, is an enormous message. And we have to have the teachers in the schools and the parents care for something beyond what is he going to do when he gets out of school, what job is he going to get, how is the thinking now, how is the sentient skin of the world affecting us, watching the right programs, reading the right uh, Stories, and whether it's The Nation or The Huff Post or reading Der Spiegel in German, in English, to get the real stories because the American insular uh, perception of, of things is, is limiting us. That's one of the key problems. So we have to look beyond. Take the time to look beyond and be curious. The main thing one needs to do, besides taking care of one's body, is to be curious and look outwards. Somebody once said, well, we can't all go to Africa. And I completely understand. One cannot even sometimes go just to Mexico. It's expensive. Or to Central uh, We Park, have to struggle for it. We have to fight, sell, sell our photographs. But once outside of New York, late summer, early fall, outside of New York, we happened to see over 2,000 cormorants fly over our head. Mm-hmm. That was epiphanic. Lauren Isley would have gone nuts over that. Things happen all the time that are mesmerizing, like the black bear cub in Central Park, the poor thing. But how did it get there? Well, and you, what bring it up, means? you bring up an important point, Cyril, in that, mm-hmm. you know, you just said Lauren Isley would have gone, you know, nuts over watching those birds fly overhead. Where yeah. do you think our Lauren Isleys of today are? Well, we, we, we got that answer from the, one of the, the key editors at Yale because we they used one of our, our photos of two bulls sparring with Gay Bradshaw's very special book, uh, Elephants on the Edge, What Animals Have to Teach Us About Humanity. I, I can pretty much guarantee there is no one like Isley, his poetic uh, depth charge of conscience. Well, we, is yeah, second to but there are other people. Gretel Ehrlich has written about her time in, in uh, Greenland, seven seasons in Greenland. There are writers from the West. There are people who are trying, like Tempest Williams, uh, several are women, Vandana Shiva, showing us uh, what, what's going on in India. None have the poetic force of Isley, who is uh, the Henry David Thoreau of the 20th century, has been compared to. Um, they, they have a lot in common and make a great dissertation. But well, let's just whatever bring it we back have, to even... we, have to, we have to hold on to that. The I'm, closest sorry to, gentleman I'm sorry to recently, interject, but let's just bring it back to someone who's in our recent history, um, Aldo Leopold. Leopold, the let's call it the father of natural modern naturalism, yeah. and um, the whole concept of stewardship. 
maybe this is what we're missing today is this concept mm-hmm. of stewardship as we watch uh, television and get our nature through TV and feel that when we go out in nature, everything should be happening and there should be danger and risk around every corner. And that what I hear you saying is that when we step into nature, there is some peace and some quiet and that we need to reconnect with that peace and that quiet. And Marie, you had said calm to find that calm place in our mind to be able to reconnect step away from this business model we have going that is killing us and going out through the rest of the world and killing it, it, it killing it as the best and the brightest of what the world has to offer. There, there uh, are, we have two minutes some, until the break. Uh, what, what do you have to say? The, the, the Maasai don't have a word for nature. They call it the beauty of God. So in, even in the, the cities that are taking a lot of resources from the rest of the world. The, the, the cities are changing now in terms of energy use and the, the cities here. Bloomberg has started to think of different initiatives, but we have to be able to find a place where we can find that, that beauty and, and actually be stewards. Having a child isn't something you do automatically. Uh, people shouldn't have children as if they were just trophies, no matter, no matter how many they have, because they are like walking little planets, and that's how we have to behave, not take them for granted. I think that's, that's one of the key callings. There are other people who decide not to have children for whatever because they think the situation is uh, a little bit uh, challenging. But if we had a completely mandatory course, which is as important as um, sci- uh, is part of science, but it's not just history, it's not just literature, it's how we have evolved over time. It's what Thomas Berry was recommending. He's no longer with us. Arnold I, need to, I need to interrupt you, Cyril. I'm sorry we have yeah. to run to a break, but you said a wonderful thing there. Each child is a little planet. So mm-hmm. we're going to pick up after the break and talk about what we can do with our little planets. So stick with us, and we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G Streaming live 
is the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back with my guests, Marie Wilkinson and Cyril Christo. And as you can see through this discussion we've been having today, there is in our past, in our history, in our culture, a very deep connection to our nature throughout the various other ethnic cultures we have here in the United States. There's certainly no lack of culture and connection to nature in other cultures around the world. Uh, in Cyril's article, Twisted Balance Sheet, he had written that they say we have until 2020 to turn things around. The Paris Conference on Climate Change next year must be the definitive statement on changing courts. So Cyril and I, excuse me, were talking through the break that, and my thought is when we put a deadline like 2020, that gives us time to sit back and say, oh, somebody will fix this. Cyril, Marie, We've been saying, no, we have to fix this in the next three to five years without giving us a a, a time frame that is in the future. We have to start now. Cyril, you were saying something through the break about this. That that thought actually came from a Hopi uh, Apache Navajo uh, elder, and they've seen what's happened to the American continent for, for many hundreds of years. People all over the world have had prophecies like this, but I started listening to the Hopi. That's why I think one of the reasons we're still here in New Mexico is because they have a connection to the earth, and we've been looking around that to Aboriginal people in, uh, in Australia, to what the Tibetans were doing and, and ending up with the Bushmen as the oldest continuous group on earth. All of them are saying the same thing. The Hopi have it uh, codified in, in a way as, a, as an oral tradition. All the native people in, in North America understand the Hopi have been saying something unique. It's just that this time of purification now is depth definitely upon us. It's, uh, it's unfolded. Um, we have to take it very, very seriously. I mean, even people in our, in, our, in our civilization like Toynbee, perhaps one of the most extraordinary historians of all time, his last book was called Mankind and Mother Earth. These are the books that need to, it's the whole history of civilization in relation to uh, the spiritual life, agriculture, um, the cradle of man and, and the river systems there, you name it. The, it's an extraordinary book. The last two chapters are on the biosphere. That was from the 70s. We, well, we have, we, we have no bit, disagreement that our, our, you know, our literature is filled with uh, information, books, poetry, you name it, Nobel uh, Prize winners that are all telling us that we have to reconnect. The problem is is that, in general, we here in the Western uh, culture are not, and this is what is, and Maurice put it very well, this is what is creating our dis-ease. Humans have a deep psychological need for wildness and nature and wildlife. We love seeing it. But something has gotten a little twisted 
in our relationship that suddenly when the nature interferes with our lifestyle and our stuff and our consumption and starts to, oh, build a raccoon, builds a nest in our chimney, or the squirrel gets inside, or the woodpeckers start eating our houses, we have a problem with it. So what I'm trying to get to today, and Cyril, you're so outspoken about this, rather than connect to the writers that we don't seem to be connecting to through our literature, through our education system, what can we tell our children? What is it that you tell Lysander? Uh, And what can we tell those children and those adults that are here today understanding we are in a place of disease and that we need to reconnect to nature? And when we do, it makes us feel better. How How are we going to do this now? To meet this time frame of uh, coming through, well, it's a little bit like learning another language. With Lysander, I always used to say to Lysander, "If you only know one language, you're hopping on one leg." So I forced feed him, and I still speak to him in French, and try to resuscitate the words that I don't know, and extend it to the larger language of what's out there. If there's a bird that lands in a tree, a hawk, even if it's a, a latecomer beetle that's just arriving. And going wherever, because they usually then are, 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 are diminishing in number and the hummingbirds are going back, people need to be severe. You're going to learn more from nature and home or the larger environment than or at least as much, hopefully, as you are in school, because you are given a bill of goods at school, you're given a certain kind of food. You need to be fully, um, fully human with your, with your back straight towards the stars, as the native people have been telling us. You need to understand that there's a larger universe and not be lazy about it, not go on a steady diet of junk food and video games and two, three, four hours of TV. The basics have to be mastered. There, there was a fabulous presentation on this very subject by Sir Ken Robinson on TED Talks. And I'd say one thing people can do is listen to TED Talks. They're amazing and they're uh, astonishing and they have a whole lot to offer uh, from which we can learn. The one by Sir Ken Robinson talks about how our education system has is basically educating the creativity out of our children mm-hmm. and that the current education system has is is failing us in the sense that it is no longer teaching us what we need to know which is exactly what Cyril said nature is severe but it's and humans are treating na- nature severely but if we're not prepared for nature and living with nature in a coexistence fashion then nature is going to be very, very severe on us, which we're seeing right now, right? So the, it's exactly Climate what shifts. they call poation, is the time of purification. It was shown in Godfrey Reggio's fantastic film, the most unique uh, experimental documentary ever, Koyaniskazi, World Out of Balance, more or less. We're going through that purification. The point is, how much do we have to absorb in terms of cyclones, earthquakes, fires, and everything else for us to have a, civil, a so-called civilization that has any ballast that, that's buoyant, that supports life, and that doesn't just consume and undermine the earth as we're now doing with fracking, uh, the, the acoustic whistles that are blasting the inner ear of the whales, which are needed to fertilize with their feces, the plankton, which is most of the oxygen on earth, comes from the oceans, not the forests. We have to save the elephant because 
beyond being itself and a miracle, it fertilizes the second largest rainforest on, on Earth, the Congo, as Ian Redmond, the primatologist, have been saying. But the Congo's motion in the atmosphere and the nutrients also help the Amazon. So it's all interconnected. That has to come through the parents, and it has to come through the teachers, and the kids have to start to realize they're living in a slightly different time than the 1960s because now we're fully uh, at, the, at the mercy of Earth because that's the message of this time. Life is not, is not something that can be replaced. We're looking for microbes on Saturn or Uranus or whatever planet, and there's hundreds of species being gone every week. Right. That's we don't really need to look for life elsewhere because there's more than enough life here if we let it live. And Cyril, you, you'd mentioned through our teachers and through our parents, but I also believe very strongly that this shift uh, and making it through this purification will come through our programming, our, our media, our programming, mm-hmm. our news, all also have to make this shift. And there is a great program, um, I don't remember which station, some cable network, Discovery or History, called How the Earth Made Man, and it speaks exactly of what you were talking about. The living lungs, the living uh, blood system, the living uh, skeletal system that the Earth is that provides life for us, that we tend to compartmentalize in terms of our human boundaries and our political lines uh, beyond what Earth is. Yeah. Hello. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, education is mostly what's gotten from 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 the intuitions and the imagination, and then we're we're digesting a bill of goods in school, which may or may not be useful for earning a living, but we're going to be challenged by even what the school system is telling us because it's 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 behind the times and the united states and itself as a country as an empire of sorts is is behind the times. so it's so it's going to I, take I would a lot rephrase of work. that we're not going to be affected and challenged we are already affected and challenged that's why we've gotten to this point yes yeah, yeah. so Absolutely. um your film upcoming film walking thunder how that tell us a little about that. It's connecting, not just talking about we have to save the elephants. We're hearing this so much that I think people are overwhelmed, as Marie had said, that we don't know what we can do. That you know, simply not bringing your own plastic, taking more plastic bags will make a dent. There are things we can do that we can control. That are actions that we can take that will make a difference. And um, your film, Walking Thunder, I'd love, we'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Marie, in you that want to say it's, it's bringing together not only the history, but the connection of people and wildlife. We have uh, a little bit left in the time, in Marie, do you, are a, you there? a few minutes yeah. left. You want to answer that a little bit? Um, yeah. Uh, this film is about um, why the elephants matter. It's about valuing a species, and by extension, you know, what I've spoken about before, but valuing where you live and why you live. Now, not everybody can go to Africa and look at elephants. And, and, you know, that might sound like we're making it sound really easy. We don't. You, one can't. But the elephant is a great big symbol and a great big metaphor for so many different things. So if we can understand why it's important to value 
the place where we live, value the elephants, understand through these through various um, people who live amongst the elephants, in, in particularly in Kenya and Tanzania, what their stories are, what their concerns are, and how they live with the elephant, despite the elephant destroying their crops, despite the elephant uh, muddying up a water hole, um, despite the elephant foraging in areas that scare away the cattle or disperse the cattle. Uh, they still revere and see the elephant as an integral part to place and, and laugh like, you know, the kid, the kid who messes up your sandcastle on the beach or the, um, the, the uncle who upsets a dinner party, Thanksgiving or something. Um, the elephant is a member of the family and is, a, is, is humorous and serious and has many lessons to teach us. Well, you've just, so you just brought up a really good should... po- I'm sorry, we, we've only got a couple of minutes to close, but you brought up a really, really important point there. Family. We may not all be able to travel elsewhere, but we can certainly travel to our family, or we can pick up the phone and talk to our grandparents of generations ago and their relationship to the earth, the farmers, the ranchers, the, the carnivores, the predators, all the biodiversity that creates our world. Just three generations ago, we can speak to those family members and find a reconnection to our children, yeah? Yes. And if anybody wants to know how they can help our film, which will not show horror and gore and mayhem and massacre, and it's not the end of the wild, although the Yao Ming will have, film will have an enormous message and have an enormous impact, there's still wild out there, and there are movements like E.O. Wilson's Half the Planet of returning some major systems to the, to the, to the, to the non-human and having the rest going to be a, cha- a challenge for civilization to meet that well, one. But you know, that's what we are in process of. We mm-hmm. are in process. There is so much going on today that is linking us to the literary greats and the researchers and scientists of our history of just how important it is. It is circular. It is cyclical. 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 I'm sorry. Things are coming back around. As we've always said, karma comes around in circles. It is coming back to bite us, and we can do something about it. So uh, we're out of time to today. for today. I would like to thank Cyril and Marie. Um, if you would like to learn more about their work, you can visit uh, Cyril Marie Wilkinson Photography and their website and learn more about the projects they've done. Read a lot about uh, Cyril's wonderful writings and the articles. And the best thing you can do is keep in tune. Put down the iPad, put down the cell phone, walk outside, Look at Good Nature TV and remember we are a part of this web. We are not above it. We are not any more sacred than any other form of life on earth and with us and without us. We can make this change happen. We are the shift. We are the people who will make a difference. So thank you, Cyril and Marie. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you, Ellie. Thank you so much for all you do. And I look, thank you, and I look forward to speaking with you further. And until next time, this is Our Wild World. I'm Ellie Weiss, and go see some nature. Thank you. Thank you, Ellie. Wonderfully done. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. We'll be right back. 